And now I would like to read this first scripture lesson, Exodus 7, verses 14 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand by at the riverbank to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was turned into a snake. Say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to say to you, let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. The fish in the river shall die, and the river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, its canals, and its ponds, and all its pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Exodus, once again, shocker. Chapter 10, verses 21 to 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a dense darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. People could not see one another, and for three days they could not move from where they were, but all the Israelites had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Only your flocks and your herds shall remain behind. Even your children may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings to sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must choose some of them for the worship of the Lord our God. And we will not know what to use to worship the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care that you do not see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. And Moses said, Just as you say, I will never see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Much better worship today than what we had last week, right? It's not, you can feel your hands. It's a positive, moving in the right direction. Well, it's good to see everybody here. I'm glad you could be with us today. Uh, We are doing a sermon series, uh, Exodus, Discovering Our Promised Land. Many of you have been here throughout that. But if you haven't, let me just give you a little background on what it's all about. So the idea behind this series is that we are examining the book of Exodus. And that's because Exodus really speaks beautifully to the circumstances in which we find ourselves right now in a world that is full of all kinds of problems, the pandemic. It's a challenging time. And the stories in Exodus, they... They speak beautifully to this idea of how we're connected to each other as individuals, as a church, and as a community at large. And the goal of the series is for us to explore the ways that we need to take a new and bold direction as Christians if we want to discover our promised land. And that means remaining relevant in the 21st century. 
So out of all the sermons that I've preached in this series so far, I've been looking forward to this one the absolute most. I have to tell you that. And the reason why is because we get to talk about the ten plagues. Who doesn't love the ten plagues, right? I mean, come on, guys. It's great. But I have been looking forward to this for a while. And what you may have noticed in this series, uh, I know Judy's noticed it, is that I haven't really been talking about the historical backdrop to everything that's been going on in the story of Exodus, which is rather unusual for me, right? I mean, you all know me. You know that I I usually do that. And we're actually going to get into this in a few more sermons down the line. But for now, what I want you to understand, and it's going to play into what we're talking about today, which is that the stories in Exodus are very much like many of the stories in the Bible, which is that they are a combination of what we call history, actual history, and sacred stories. We'll get more into that a little bit later on today. So, For today, what I want to do is I want to begin by going back over what we talked about last week, and then we'll dive into today. Sound good? Good. Or no, you don't want to do that. Okay. All right, let's go back. We'll do a little bit of recap. So basically up to this point, what happens is God comes to Moses and his brother Aaron, and he says, look, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell Pharaoh he needs to release the Hebrew people from their slavery. And God gives Moses and Aaron some firepower, gives them the ability to perform signs. And these signs are things like turning your staff into a snake, turning the water in and around Egypt into blood. And so they go to Pharaoh, and Aaron takes the staff, turns it into a snake. And Pharaoh calls in his sorcerers and says, can you do the same thing? And they take their staff, they turn it into a snake. And this causes... Pharaoh to reject Moses's request basically says I don't need to do it because basically if his sorcerers can do the same thing as Moses's God then Moses's God isn't that powerful Moses's God is equal to human magic so you know why should I listen to you and the scripture is very specific on this point it actually says that Moses was asking this of him and that Pharaoh's heart was hardened that he was unwilling to allow the people to go now What is a hardened heart? This is very important. You see this throughout the entire rest of the Bible. And I'm so glad that you asked the question, what is a hardened heart? I know all of you were thinking, Alex, tell me all about it. So, a hardened heart is when a person is unmoved by the plight and suffering of others. It is when you are unwilling to change your mind and your actions regardless of of who they hurt. So in this particular instance, you have Pharaoh, right? And he is directly responsible for the suffering of the Hebrew people, but he is unmoved by their suffering. His heart is hardened, and he's unwilling to let them go because they serve his needs. And indeed, the rest of the Bible is really about God softening people's hearts so that they are willing to help and serve the poor and the oppressed. And in fact, that's the entire New Testament, my friends. We are here to serve and help the marginalized in the world. So, Aaron performs the, the trick. He, he turns the staff into a snake. Uh, Pharaoh is unmoved by it, and he says, look, I'm not letting him go. And so this is when Aaron takes his staff, he extends it out over the Nile River, And he ends up turning it all into blood. And the scripture says that all of the fish in the Nile River die. And this begins a pattern that we see. Basically what happens is Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They say, hey, let our people go. And then Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He says, no thanks. And then that begins the next plague. 
Now, there's a total of 10 plagues. I want to list them all out for you so that you know what they are because we're going to go through each of them today. So the first one, which you already know, plague number one, turning water into blood. Two is the plague of frogs. Three is the plague of gnats. Four is the plague of flies. Five is the plague of diseased livestock. Six is the plague of boils. Seven is the plague of thunder and hail. Eight is the plague of locusts. Nine is the plague of darkness, which is what we read this morning. And ten is the plague of the death of the firstborn. What the scripture relays to us is that it is after plague number ten that Pharaoh finally relents and allows the Hebrew people to leave because he ends up losing his firstborn son. Now, I don't know about you. How many of you all read this as a child? Raise your hand if you did. Did you read this as a child? You heard about the ten plagues? I certainly did. Heard it as a child. Thought it was a pretty cool story. Then I became an adult and I read the story again. And I thought, nah, it sounds a little fantastical to me. Don't know if I entirely buy it. It feels like a little bit of authorial embellishment. But then I started, once I got into seminary and I started studying this, I went and did some research. And what I discovered is that this story is very similar to Noah and the Ark. Those of you who were here seven years ago, you probably remember me talking about Noah and the Ark, and I said that that story is likely based on the flooding of the Black Sea through the Bosphorus Strait. And this story is very, very similar. There's geological evidence to suggest that these plagues are real and that they happened in the order in which we find them in the Bible. Now, in order to explain this to you, the first thing that I have to really talk to you about is all of the tectonic plates and the rifts that are found all around the Mediterranean and the shifting that occurs. So the Great Rift, which is where the African plate meets the Asian plate, that runs straight down through the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Persian Gulf. The next runs through the modern Suez Canal, and the final runs through the, uh, the Egyptian Nile Delta. At the top there, what you're seeing is where the African plate meets the Asian plate. And right across that is the island of Santorini. And that is where you find the Santorini volcano. In 1600 BC, the Santorini volcano erupted. It exploded. And to give you a sense of just how massive an eruption this was, geologists, they have a scale to measure the explosiveness of an eruption. It's literally called the Volcanic Explosivity Index. And it goes from zero to eight. So zero is basically a volcanic eruption that produces no explosion. And an eight is what's called a a megacolossal super explosion that can produce upwards of 240 miles of ash and dust into the atmosphere. Now Santorini, when it erupted in 1600 B.C., was a seven. So it was huge. It was the equivalent of several hundred atomic bombs going off at one time. The people who lived on the island of Santorini were all killed. This is the island of Santorini. That part in the very middle there where you see ocean, that's not what the island used to be. That's what got blown away by this eruption. So it was such a massive eruption that the sound circled the earth ten times. That's how huge this was. This is considered to be one of the largest volcanic eruptions ever to occur in human history. The only one that was bigger than that is what I talked about in the first sermon with the Toba volcano exploding. Now, why have I told you about the Santorini volcano? What does this matter? Because 
when you have an eruption of that size, what it does is it causes eruptions along the neighboring fault lines. So all those fault lines that I talked about, the one specifically that runs under the Nile Delta, there were earthquakes. And when there's earthquakes, it often releases pockets of CO2 that are trapped underneath the earth. So when those pockets of CO2 come up, let's say it comes up on land, where we are right here, just rises up into the atmosphere, right? However, when those pockets of CO2 are underneath water, when it's underneath bodies of water, what will happen is it'll disrupt the sediment. It'll actually cause the sediment to rise. And a lot of times that sediment has iron in it. And when that iron mixes with air, with oxygen, what does it cause? It causes a rust color. And in water, that turns into what looks like what? Blood. So we know this to be true because in 1986 at Lake Neos in Cameroon, there was this exact event. So Lake Neos is on a fault line. It's right underneath a fault line and there was an earthquake. This earthquake disrupted CO2, allowed it to come to the surface and it turned the entire lake red at that point in time. All the iron went to the top, it turned it red. Plague number one, okay? Turning the water to blood. Now, at the same time, what you have going on is that at Lake Neos in Cameroon, after it turned the water red, all of the fish in that lake died because there was CO2 being pumped up, and that got rid of all the oxygen, so the fish couldn't live. So they all died, and they got out. Now, imagine, this is what's happening on the River Nile, right? All of that, all of that CO2 comes up. It kills all the fish in the Nile. Now, if you're an amphibian, and you can breathe air, and that water is toxic to you, what are you going to do if you're a frog? You're going to jump out onto the land, which happens to be what? Plague number two, plague of frogs. Now, as all those fish in the Nile die, they float to the surface, and they end up coming up on the shore. And then you have all of these gnats and flies that come in and start laying their eggs on all of these rotting carcasses. And so you had a lot of gnats and flies to begin with. Now they're everywhere. And so this is plagues three and four. If you know anything about livestock, livestock drink a lot of water. And so what they're doing is they're going to the various water sources in Egypt, most of it going into the Nile, and they go and they drink and they're sipping from this. And all of this water is very toxic to them because it's full of CO2, And on top of that, it's full of rotting fish. And so this causes the livestock to become diseased. It causes them to get sick, and it causes many of them to die, which, of course, is plague number five, diseased livestock. At the same time, because the river Nile is so polluted at this point, people are not bathing anymore because they don't want to touch the water. And when you don't bathe, you get dirt on you, and that causes clogged pores. You know, horrible thing. Got to worry about those clogged pores, right? And those clogged pores, when they get too clogged, what they end up doing is they can cause abrasions on the skin because you start scratching it, right? It opens it up. Now, with all of these flies around, flies carry a lot of germs on them. You probably know this. It's why you don't want to have flies land on your food, right? One of, the, one of the germs they carry is known as staphylococcal bacteria. Staphylococcal bacteria, when it connects or when it's, when it's touched, when a fly has it on its wings or on its arms and it touches an open sore, that is what creates boils. So the fly comes down, 
touches the open wound, causes boils. This is not only true for human beings, it is also true for animals. So as they get clogged pores, as they get abrasions, this causes boils. So this is number six. To go to plague number seven, we have to go back to the Santorini volcano. So the Santorini volcano, it's erupting. It's spewing tons and tons of ash into the air. And this ash, as it goes up into the air, it gets into the stratosphere. And it creates what scientists refer to as accretionary lapilli. Accretionary lapilli. Now that is when that ash ends up getting encased in ice. This is known as volcanic hailstones. Now what's amazing about this is that if you read in the Bible about plague number seven, this is exactly what it says. Literally the way it describes this. Hail and fire came down to earth. And literally it says, in the Hebrew it says, Basically, hail mixed with fire. So it's actually talking about this very thing that is going on. And this hail, as it comes down to earth, it's destroying all of their crops. And any person or livestock that's out, it's going to kill them too. So they have to get underneath covered surfaces. And when it hits wooden structures, it's going to set them all on fire. You with me so far? We're seven plagues in, three more to go. All right, now, if you've ever been to the Middle East or you know about the Middle East, you also know that there are locusts everywhere. Locusts are all over the place. And they travel together in swarms. Now, normally, locusts, when they're in their swarms, they will kind of go from place to place and they'll eat. But what happens in this particular situation is that as the hailstorm comes in, it drives the temperatures down. And when the temperatures get low, locusts, they like hot temperatures. When it gets low, they will all land on the ground and wait because they don't want to use up their energy. They have to keep the calories they have to stay warm. They're not going to fly. So this hailstorm comes in. It's probably going to last for days, maybe even weeks. And all those locusts are sitting there on the ground waiting, all the various swarms. And then the hail goes away and the temperature rises. Now, they've been sitting there for days, possibly even weeks, waiting to eat. They are Very, very hungry. They have voracious appetites. And so now all of these locusts come together. They swarm together towards what's left of the crops. So this is plague number eight. Plague number nine is related once again to the Santorini volcano. It's what we read this morning. Because what it describes is exactly what happened. So when the Santorini volcano erupted, it ejected a dust and ash cloud 40 kilometers tall and 200 kilometers wide. As this moved across the earth, as it moved south towards Egypt, it occluded the sun for days. Literally, you wouldn't be able to see anything. Right now, if that had happened, if we were next to that, it would basically be like it was dark. And what's interesting is, in the Bible, it describes it as a dense darkness. Literally, a darkness with texture to it. And that, of course, comes from the ash of the volcano. So, this leads us to the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn. And for this, we have to go back to the example of Lake Neos in Cameroon in 1986. So I explained to you all that what happened was there was a pocket of CO2 gas underneath Lake Neos, and it pumped into the lake. And it turned the lake red, and then it killed all the fish inside of it. What they did not know was happening is that the surface tension of the water was holding all of that CO2 in that body of water and just kept pumping it in and pumping in. And then on August 21st, what happened was there was an earthquake. 
And this earthquake caused a bunch of rocks to slide into the water. And this broke the surface tension. And it allowed all of that CO2 to rise up at the same time. This was in the middle of the evening. And so it rises up and it combines, that CO2 combines with evaporated water droplets and forms a fog. And the fog ends up moving across the land. Everybody was asleep. It moves up on the land. Now, the people who were higher at higher land at that point, they came down in the morning, and they found an absolutely awful sight. 1,800 people were dead, and hundreds of livestock, because anybody who was sleeping next to the ground, human or livestock, were suffocated by this. It literally rolled onto the ground, and it killed all of these people. It was awful. I actually have footage of that. Decided not to show it, but I just thought I would let you know that that's what happened. And this is likely what happened in Egypt during this eruption, which is that you had all the CO2 built up. It breaks the surface tension. It rolls onto ground. Now, were firstborns the only ones who died? No, probably not. But it is likely that you would have had a lot of firstborns in that, and it's possible even that Pharaoh's firstborn son died. So all of this to say that there is ample evidence to suggest that these plagues were real, that they did happen. We even have Egyptian papyrus from this period of time that talk about this occurring. Where I would disagree with the Bible is that I believe that this happened as a result of a natural disaster. I do not believe that we have Aaron and God and Moses causing it. It's very much like the uh, story of Noah and the ark, right? Where you have a historical event, but then the authors have taken some liberty in the way that they have told the story. Now, this does not take away from the fact that the people who would have experienced this at the time would have literally thought that the world was coming to an end, yes? I mean, can you imagine living at that time and then having this happen, these things, one thing after another after another? It would have felt like the world was just about to collapse in on you. And because they didn't understand that it was happening because of a volcano, they would have thought they were being punished by God for something that they had done wrong. And indeed, in the ancient world, you've heard me talk about this before, but I think it's important to say it again, which is that they believed that God controlled the weather and that God would use the weather as a means to punish people who had done things wrong and to reward people who had done things right. So if we're going to reward people, you're going to have lots of rain, good crops. If you're going to punish people, you're going to have drought and lots of natural disasters. There are still some Christians who believe that God controls the weather. I do not believe that God controls the weather because everything that we experience with weather, you can explain with earth science, whether it be hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, the whole deal, earthquakes, all of it. You can explain it all with earth science. So for me, I do not believe God controls the weather, and I do not believe that God uses the weather as a means to punish or reward human behavior. From my perspective, and I know people don't like to think of us this way, we are just one of many organisms on this planet, and we interact with and react to the ecosystem that is around us. And that ecosystem is constantly having interplay with us. Whereas the people in the ancient world, they had no concept of this. They didn't know how all this stuff worked. They didn't have earth science. So they were often unprepared for natural disasters. Whereas we can prepare for natural disasters. We prepare for them all the time. So we can tell when a volcano is about to explode, yes? We know when a hurricane is coming. We have satellites over the earth that can see them coming. We can see as they're building up the volume and the velocity. And we can even evacuate a city if we need to. We even know when a tornado 
is about to touch down. So we know so much more than they did. We are able to navigate disasters in ways that they couldn't in the ancient world. In the ancient world, disaster comes, you're hoping and praying you're going to survive. Today, we know it's coming and we can prevent people from having to suffer unnecessarily. And let me give you an example of this. This is something, let me give you an example of something that's happening right now that we know is happening. We understand why it's happening and it makes a big difference. So right now, you all may be aware that on the continent of Africa, there's a band within the African continent across several countries where they are experiencing severe drought, very, very severe drought. This drought right now, as we speak, literally hundreds of thousands of people are starving to death because of this drought. Now, because we know earth science, because we can study all this stuff, what we know is that this drought is going to last for many, many years. It's not going away anytime soon. And so the people who are there, this is why a lot of them are starting to migrate north, because there's literally nothing for them there. There are no resources, so they're headed towards Europe. Now, under normal circumstances, when I would tell you this, what we would usually do is we'd say, well, that's awful. That's horrible. And then we pray and we say, oh, God, help them out. And then we move on with our lives and we never think about it again. Right? But if we go back to my supposition from a few weeks ago, which is that God is in everyone and everything, then those people become our responsibility. Allowing them to suffer is not an option. And I really think this is a big part of what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century. Is that we have to be global citizens. In the past, we were focused mostly on what was right here, right in front of us. Right? That's what we were looking at. It's our local community. And that's understandable. We didn't know much about what was going on beyond our local community. But today, we do know. Today, we are well aware of what's happening in our world around us. And so as a result, what this means is that our promised land, when we're talking about this, where we're headed to, it means that our promised land as Christians, where we want to go, is not just right here in Arlington Heights. It's not just the state of Illinois. It's not even the United States of America. It's every country on every continent across the world. And what this means practically to be a global citizen, because I want to make sure I'm clear on this. To be a global citizen... What it means is that we have to be aware of how our actions right here in this place impact people halfway across the world who we don't even know. Now, when I start talking about the connections between us and people halfway across the world, what I notice happens very often is that I see people become like Pharaoh. There's a bit of a hardness of heart around it. Now, what is a hard heart? Let's just talk about that one more time. I want you all to be able to to just understand. A hard heart is when a person is unmoved by the plight and suffering of other people. It is when a person is unwilling to change their thoughts and their actions in spite of how those thoughts and actions might cause harm to the people around them. Pharaoh, he was unwilling to change, right? Because he saw the Hebrew people, he, was, he could see their suffering, he was responsible for their suffering, but he didn't want to do anything because they served his needs. In the same way, what I notice when I start talking about these connections is that a lot of times people will say, hey, not my problem. I'm here, I'm living my life, this does not concern me. I'm not halfway across the world in Africa, but I'm going to talk to you about how you here, how you are connected 
to those people halfway across the world, how your actions here do make a difference for them. And to help you understand this, I want to tell you something that many of you already know, which is that a lot of corporations here in the United States, we utilize the natural resources found on the African continent for their products. And this is not necessarily bad or good in and of itself, right? They go over, the corporations say, hey, you have a natural resource. Can we come up with a contract? We pay you for them. We'll extract them. We'll use them in our products, right? It's not a bad deal. They get money. We get the products. Now, again, in and of itself, not necessarily a bad thing. The only issue is that sometimes the extraction of those resources can go too far. And a good example of this would be the example of South Sudan. So we have timber contracts right now, many, many companies do, with Sudan, the Sudanese governments. So they go in, they extract the timber. It's the reason why you can go to Lowe's and Home Depot and you can get wood whenever you want. It's because they're able to extract those things from that area. They bring them over here. The unfortunate consequence of that is that when you get too much deforestation, what occurs is that it disrupts the ecosystem. So one of the reasons why they don't have any plants and crops there right now is because you need forests to produce the rain cycle. Earth science, you need the forest there. It creates the ability to have precipitation. The forests are so gone at this point that that can't happen anymore. That's the reason why they're having to migrate is because there's not enough forest there to produce the rain that they need to grow their crops. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking in your mind, and rightfully so, well, isn't it the responsibility, Alex, of the Sudanese government to monitor how much of their natural resources they're letting us use so that they don't hurt their own people? Which is absolutely true. I would not disagree with you on that. The only problem is if you know anything about Sudan, you know their government hasn't been functional for decades. They're in the middle of a civil war right now. And so I think the question we have to be asking is, is it right for us to take those resources when it's harming those people in such a way, particularly given the circumstances, so that we can have wood when we go to the store? And these are the questions we need to start asking ourselves. This is the connection. And we can't have that hardness of heart. As some of you might be sitting there thinking, like, I don't know. Again, Alex, I don't know. It doesn't really matter to me. It's not really my problem. It is our problem. If you're a Christian and you're a global citizen, it's your problem. So once you see these connections, then you have to start asking yourself, well, what do I do? You can change your buying habits, which is true. But I think it's something bigger than that. These corporations in this country, what makes them so amazing is they make these products for us that really make our lives better. But they are beholden to us, the people. And we should go to them and say, look, hey, if you're going to have this product, if you're going to make this product, and you're going to get the resources for it, we ask that you get those resources in a way that is environmentally sustainable and that you're not going to harm the people from the local communities where you're taking this from. It's one thing to take some trees and make sure they can still eat. You take too many, that's a lot. And we are complicit in that. And I can tell you that for me personally, I would rather go to a Lowe's or Home Depot and buy a two-by-four that costs more, knowing that it costs more because I'm allowing a Sudanese family to stay on their land and not starve to death. I can tell you that right now. I'd rather pay a little bit more for that wood than to be in that situation. So we have to demand that change. And so this is a big part of what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century. You have to be willing to see the connections with how you personally and us as a collective whole, how we bring plagues on each other. 
And we do. There's so many of us on the planet now that we do this unintentionally. I know none of you sat here and thought to yourself, you know what I want to do? I want to make it so that the Sudanese families starve to death. Nobody was thinking that. Nobody was intending that. But that's what happens over time. And when we see those connections, we have to demand the change. And this goes back to the scripture we read. Whenever a plague was happening, Aaron would extend his staff and the plague would happen until the staff... Until, this, until he raised his staff back up. And this is what we need to do, right? We see that the plague is happening, and we have the ability to raise the staff and to stop it from happening. And I think if we're willing to do that, then we can truly become the kind of Christians that Jesus envisioned us to be. When you hear love your neighbor, a lot of times we think of the people living right next door to us, or the people in our local community. But today, to be a Christian is to understand we are part of a global community. And we have to understand how our actions here impact people halfway across the world. And if we can do that, if we can go down that road, then my friends, we truly will have lived up to what Jesus said when he said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.